This is Warner Lewis, and welcome to another edition of Lewis at Large, smart talk and conversation with talented people from all walks of life. A reminder to subscribe to these Lewis at Large podcasts, go to Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. And if you like the podcast, hey, let others know about it. For context, my interview with Adam Gentleson was recorded in February of 2021. This segment, uh, as all of them, uh, certainly no exception, uh, got a good one. We're going to be talking to Adam Gentleson. He is the former, or is he currently, rather, excuse me, the public affairs director at Democracy Forward and a former deputy chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid. Uh, he writes a column for GQ, and he's a frequent political commentator on MSNBC, uh, and he lives in the fine state of Maryland. Uh, but we will be talking about a brand-new uh, work that he has penned called The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. So with that uh, out of the way, so to speak, uh, Adam, uh, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm, it's great to be here, Warner. Well, uh, Kill Switch, uh, that's quite a, that, that is quite a title. And uh, again, you, you're speaking uh, of an area of which you have quite a bit of experience. Let's do this, if you would, for our Lewis at Large listeners. Uh, give us a little bit more background. Tell us a little bit about Democracy Forward. And also, what was the motivation uh, for you to put together Kill Switch? That's right. Yeah, so Democracy Forward is a, is a legal accountability uh, organization. Um, it's a small nonprofit that uh, seeks to fight corruption in government. Uh, I work there as a public affairs director, um, doing communications and, and outreach to uh, folks on the Hill. Um, I've been doing that for a few years. I left the Senate in 2017, um, and it was my experience there that, that drove me to write this book. And, you know, what I tried to do with the book was sort of try to find some resolution to uh, the discrepancy that I found when I was working there between what I expected the Senate to be uh, and had you know been told it would be and and what it was in reality and specifically uh, with the title I, I try to get at this idea um, that we're often told that the Senate is this citadel of wisdom um, the phrase that is often used to describe it is cooling saucer uh, as in the place where ideas go to be mellowed uh, to be uh, you know made more sophisticated uh, but ultimately passed and uh, the Senate that, that I experienced when I was there was, was anything but. Um, it was certainly slow. Uh, it was certainly uh, uh, paralyzed. Um, but there was no wisdom in it. And I think what you're told about the Senate and what kids are taught in school is that while it may be slow, um, it's slow for a reason. It's slow to produce wise outcomes. Um, but there was no wisdom in the Senate that, that I experienced. And I think there's no wisdom in the Senate uh, today. Um, it has simply become a place where good ideas go to die, and this book tries to look at uh, the history uh, of why that is. Um, as I argue, it's the culmination of, of centuries-long trends, uh, many of which were intentional um, and waged by people who didn't want, uh, who don't want things to happen, um, and and that's that's the conclusion I've come to. Let me ask you something. Again, you're speaking uh, from an area where you lived in the Senate. Uh, would you find this same phenomenon to be true in the House? The House is different. Um, you know, the House has always been majority rule. As I, as I argue in the book, what's, what's interesting about the Senate is we've, we've come to expect this uh, state of play where everything has to get 60 votes, but that's actually not the case. It was also supposed to be majority rule. Um, we can talk about that more. But, you know, the House has generally sort of stayed uh, within its identity. I think if the framers were to look at the House today, um, they probably would not be surprised by anything about it. Um, there have been, you know, some changes, but it's generally uh, the same sort of place 
that it was created to be, whereas the Senate could not possibly look more different from what the framers created. Um, it was supposed to be a place with no party leaders. Uh, it was supposed to be a place where every senator had the same amount of power. Um, you know, committees and committee chairmen uh, would have more power, but but certainly not marching in lockstep to the uh, orders of party leaders. Uh, and it was supposed to be a place where things got done. Um, there was there was not supposed to be a filibuster, as I explained in the book. The filibuster didn't come into existence for decades after the Senate was created. Um, it was supposed to be a place where debate was free and open and extended, uh, but where there was no obstruction. It was never supposed to be used to stop bills. Uh, debate was. It was supposed to be used to, to persuade people. And, and after an argument was sort of completed, uh, people were supposed to move on and, and take a vote. So, you know, the paralysis, the, the top-down partisan control, um, all of these things uh, are, are things that would, would shock the framers if they looked at the Senate today. What, uh, you know, as, as we think about the Senate, and uh, again, just for, for our listeners' uh, point of view and context, uh, this is being recorded just a couple of days before uh, Joe Biden will be uh, inaugurated as the president of the United States, and we now know that the Senate will now be controlled, so to speak, ultimately by the Democratic Party, uh, with a 50-50 uh, with Vice President Harris casting a deciding vote. Does this bouncing back and forth of majority uh, ruling, the majority parties ruling the Senate going back and forth and back and forth, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Uh, what's your perspective there, and how does that sort of play into this? Well, I think it's a function of, of our polarized uh, state of our society today. Um, you, you, you know, simply you're going to see uh, control of the Senate narrowly divided between parties. And, you know, since it's always going to sort of, um, you know, uh, the number of seats each party controls will always sort of hover around the low to mid-50s for the foreseeable future, you're going to see a lot of, a lot of shifting back and forth. Um, I'm, I don't have a strong opinion on whether that in and of itself is a good or bad thing. Um, I do have an opinion on the fact that, um, you know, counterintuitively you'd expect this narrow majority, uh, or, or rather intuitively you'd expect this narrow majority to be good for bipartisanship, but counterintuitively it is actually bad for bipartisanship. And this is one of the things I write about in the book. You know, you'd think that if the parties are sort of evenly balanced in the Senate, you know, that they would have an incentive to work together. What actually turns out to be the case, and this has been uh, studied and documented over, over decades now, is that these narrow majorities actually give the party that's out of power a massive political incentive not to work with the party in power. The reason being that, you know, when Republicans, the party out of power right now, are just one seat away from being able to take back the majority in the next election, the upcoming midterms in 2022, uh, their incentive is to block the Democrats, uh, manufacture gridlock, and make the party in power look bad so that the Democratic base will be depressed in 2022 and Republicans can ride voter frustration with the gridlock in Washington to take back the Senate in 2020, in the next midterms. Um, when, when the majorities are this close, that incentive always exists. It always seems possible in the very next election for the party out of power to take back the majority. And so that is why these narrow majorities are actually pretty bad for bipartisanship. So let me ask you a question. Uh, we hear about gridlock and one party blaming the other back and forth and back and forth. Are we, as, as a general public, are we as the general electorate, are we too stupid, so to speak, to see that these are, this is political <laughs> gamesmanship? And as be, if we are too stupid, is that why we don't, so to speak, throw them all out? 
I mean, government well, is designed you know, to be something that serves the people, Republican or Democrat. In the, and I'm going to show my age here a little bit, but I remember one of Bob Dole's closest associates in the United States Senate was a guy named George McGovern. Those two could not be more politically far apart, but they came together on several pieces of legislation uh, that they co-authored. So help us a little bit. Sure. So, you know, what I think is it's it's not the voters' fault. And, and you know, I hate to, to forgive the politicians because, um, you know, they're responsible for their own actions. But, but I think that what I try to explain in the book is that it's really a structural issue. And I think that if we're going to want to see some of this change, we have to examine the structures. And part of the reason there's gridlock in the Senate is that we basically set our lawmakers up to fail by the nature of the Senate rules. I mean, it's, it's not us doing it. They, they've done it. They've created these rules and, and put these structures in place. Um, but now we need to push them to change them, because as long as there's a 60-vote hurdle in the Senate, uh, which has sort of become defined as a modern version of the filibuster, um, as long as that exists, and again, this is something that's come into existence only very recently, uh, it's basically impossible to get anything done. Uh, you know, to, as of right now, Democrats will need 10 Republican votes to do most of anything in the Senate. Uh, and I think that's just unrealistic. Um, what we need to do is, is give our lawmakers a better chance to succeed by urging them to reform the Senate. Uh, this is why I advocate in the book for returning the Senate to where the framers intended it to be, as a majority rule institution, um, you know, you'll still have politicians acting in, in corrupt and embarrassing and, and uh, impolitic and, and even unethical ways. You know, that's just sort of comes with the territory. But what you what you probably will see is the gears of government turning again. And I think that we need a functioning federal government to meet the massive challenges that we face today. Uh, we, we simply have uh, too many challenges of, of too great a scope. Uh, to afford to have a Senate that, that blocks every common-sense solution from, from passing. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have a, an extremely high opinion of politicians. I don't think that they are, you know, every once in a while you get one who's capable of, of higher-order conduct, but, you know, I think we need to create a system that, that accepts the fact that politicians are always going to respond to short-term political incentives, um, and so we need to make a system that, that takes away the power of the party that's, that's in the minority to, to grind the gears of government to a halt, to throw a monkey wrench in the system, um, we need to restore it to a majority rule body where, uh, you know, a reasonable group of people can come together with a reasonable plan uh, and get it done. Um, you know, I like to think that will also help uh, restore some bipartisanship. Um, you can't have bipartisanship when nothing's getting done. Uh, you know, once the gears start turning, once legislation starts passing, um, if you take away the ability of the minority to block and you, you give them the options either of just sitting on the sidelines or working with the party that's, that's getting things done. I think you'll see more senators come across the aisle and start working to get things done. Look, if they don't, they don't, but things will still get done. Uh, and I think that has to be the primary focus here. Um, you know, politicians will always be politicians, but we have to restore a more functioning government, and we have to make the Senate uh, go back to the way the framers intended it to be. You're listening to Lewis at large. Yours truly, Warner Lewis, as always, from the Flight Tech. I uh, got a good one going here with Adam Gentleson. He is the Public Affairs Director of Democracy Forward and a former uh, Deputy Chief of Staff uh, to Senator Harry Reid. Uh, brand new work called Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Uh, Adam, uh, here's one for you. Uh, a couple questions. One, uh, did the results of the Georgia election surprise you? Uh, and two, uh, did it surprise either party? Uh, I think the answer to 
both is yes. It, it surprised me because I've I've seen a lot of these runoff elections in in Georgia specifically and in other states uh, like Louisiana um, before in recent years, and you know generally. Democrats lose them, even if they're coming off a successful November election. So I, you know, I, I didn't get my hopes too high um, as as much as I uh, thought the candidates that Democrats were running were, were superior in this case. Um, and I also think it surprised the parties. I think I think Republicans expected to win, uh, and I think Democrats were were pretty um, hedging their bets against the loss. Uh, you know, I think what you saw was Donald Trump played a decisive role and not in a good way for Republicans. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, folks try to game out what the nature of our elections are going to look like without Trump on the ballot. And, you know, the big question is, will uh, Trump supporters turn out in the same numbers um, for Republicans if Trump himself isn't on the ballot? And so Georgia strongly suggests the answer to that is no. Um, and I also think it shows what, what happens when you run really strong candidates who, who ran on a very clear economic message. Um, Raphael Warnock, especially, who, who outperformed Ossoff, was just an incredibly strong candidate. Um, and both he and Ossoff had a clear message. They focused on delivering direct uh, checks to people as part of COVID aid. Um, they, they, uh, you know, they, they didn't um, try to hem and haw. And I think uh, those factors together, the sort of, you know, weakening of Trump's support, um, combined with Democrats' finding a way to run on a strong economic message was, was something that, that probably should be pretty encouraging for Democrats moving forward. What about, uh, again, we're asking you to prognosticate here just a little mm-hmm. bit here, but uh, let's go forward a couple weeks, a month. Um, Donald Trump is no longer president, and there there is a part of me, a strong part of me, or a part of me that strongly believes that as a result of that, uh, the president of the United States will not be first and foremost the lead in every single newscast. Um, there will not be the kind of tweeting and the kind of uh, newsmaking, if you want to call it that, communication coming directly from the White House, focusing the attention specifically on the president. A, do you agree with that? And B, as a result of that, do things start to the waters? start to recede just a little bit, and we just get back into the good old Dems versus Republicans arguments and conflicts on policy versus personality. I I hope that's the case. I think the first part is is right. I think that, you know, Biden sort of wants to make make government boring again in a good way um, and isn't going to be seeking to be the the lead of every news cycle. Um, I think he wants to, you know, let people go for days even without thinking about their president. I think that's that's a good thing. Um, I, I do worry that uh, we're, we're you know our politics might get worse before it gets better. Um, I think that the Republican Party um, is you know hopefully facing a reckoning right now, especially given what we saw in the last week. But I'm I'm concerned that um, it's going to continue to be Trump's party uh, even now. So, um, you know, without Trump on the ballot, they may have less direction, but I'm still worried that the same incentives will apply, uh, and folks like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz will be the ones who, who sort of take over leadership of the party. So hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully I'm being too cynical here, um, but, but I think it remains to be seen. So here's my question. We hand out 100 copies of Kill Switch to all the uh, people in the United States Senate. Uh, how many people are applauding this book, and how many people are just simply aghast at what you're putting forward? <laughs> so 
So I'd say, let's see, there's uh, 50 Republicans in the Senate. I think all 50 would probably be aghast. Uh, I think most Democrats would, would be supportive of it. Um, I think that the sentiment in favor of reform um, is much stronger the Democratic Party, certainly than the Republican Party, and even than it has been in the past among Democrats. Um, I think there's a handful of Democrats who are still very reluctant about some of the ideas I put forward in the book. Uh, but, but they're a small number. And, you know, what's funny is, you know, I was there in, in 2009 and 10 under Obama when Democrats had, uh, you know, close to 60 votes. They, they did have 60 votes for a few months. Um, it toggled back and forth because of the special election in Massachusetts. But, you know, they had anywhere between 50 and 60 votes uh, for, for two years. Even though they had many more votes then, I think there were far fewer votes in favor of reform uh, because Democrats still had this idea that seemed plausible at the time that Republicans were going to cross the aisle and work in a productive way with this popular new president in Barack Obama. Um, I think, you know, the reality has gotten harsher and has really sunk in on a lot of Democrats now. I think um, they're not, I'm sure they'd love to see a flourishing of bipartisan cooperation, but I think they're not holding their breath and, uh, you know, they'll give Republicans a chance, but I think that it's not going to take a lot for most Democrats to come around to the idea that reform is probably necessary if we're going to get anything done in the Senate. Are there members of the United States Senate on both sides of the aisle that would fall, though, into and, and fall into what you would consider uh, ones that are not a kill switch, ones that, that, that are you feel are philosophically and politically, et cetera, acceptable to you, so to speak, in terms of, of executing their work in the Senate and recognizing the Senate for what you believe uh, is its proper role? Oh, absolutely. I think there's a lot of great senators. I mean, I think actually people would be pleasantly surprised if they were able to follow along your average senator in a day in the life sort of thing. Um, because in general, these are, these are people who are there to work on policy. Um, they're there because they care about public policy. They care about public service. Uh, and they want to do the right thing. And, and I think what the book really tries to say is that we're just not giving them a chance. We're, we're putting them in an impossible situation um, in a Senate that's been shaped intentionally by uh, reactionaries dating back to John Calhoun, who took what was supposed to be, you know, it was always a delicate balance, I think that's part of the problem, um, because the Senate was always supposed to strike this delicate balance between being deliberative, being thoughtful, um, you know, being sort of taking a longer time to consider issues and being more sophisticated in the House, uh, but, but still get things done. And what's happened is that balance is just tilted dramatically into the direction of never getting anything done. So, you know, what I want to do is, is reform the Senate to give these, these senators who really do want to give the right thing a fighting chance at getting things done. Uh, because right now they're just we're putting them up against a po- impossible odds in a Senate where, where you have to uh, not just get a majority in support of your idea, but get a supermajority, uh, including many people who have no interest in working with you because they're just out there to, to make you look bad. So, you know, I, I, I think that senators are on balance, um, you know, are thoughtful people who care about policy. And we just have to give them a chance to, to, you know, to legislate again. Okay. So, Adam, as we start to kind of wind down here, uh, the rise uh, of the modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy, wave a wand, so to speak. What, what needs to be different and how does that change happen? And what, if anything, uh, can our listeners do other than look, read this as a sort of an intellectual exercise? What, 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 what needs to happen to make this thing be right itself, so to speak? 
So, you know, I, yes, I would definitely encourage everybody to read the book. That's obviously uh, self-interested of me, but, but I do think that, um, you know, there's not a lot out there that, that, that takes the Senate um, uh, and, and tries to tear down a lot of the myths of the institution. It's, it's an institution that, that enjoys wrapping itself in its own myths, and so I tried to uh, take a clear-eyed look at it with this book. Um, but, but what I would do if I could wave a magic wand would, would be to, you know, to get rid of uh, or at least dramatically reform the filibuster so that it goes back to something sort of like the Jimmy Stewart-style talking filibuster that people are familiar with. And I think a lot of people think that's still how the filibuster operates today, although it's not. Um, the other thing that I would do is deconstruct these top-down, um, calcified, partisan leadership structures. Um, the Senate was not supposed to be a place where senators took their marching orders from leadership and where leadership controlled everything that happened on the floor down to the most minute detail. I think you need to, to democratize power in the Senate to give it back to individual senators, to give it back to the committees. Uh, and so the combination of those two things, I think, are what's essential. Um, you need to make it easier to pass legislation to give senators a fighting chance of actually getting things done. Uh, and you need to give them more power so that, so that you know, their, their engagement on policy, all the work they put into developing bills and legislation, um, they can actually get it done. I think those two things together would you know, push the incentives back into a positive direction. Right now you have incentives for obstruction. You have incentives for making the other side look bad. We need to restore incentives to get things done, to reward senators who legislate, uh, who want to be thoughtful and engage their colleagues on the critical issues we face today. So, you know, those two things to me are, are what would achieve that, you know, restoring it to a majority rule threshold uh, and democratizing leadership. In terms of what people can do, uh, I would simply encourage them to, to call their senators and push for reform. I think this is an issue that's going to come to a head very quickly in the Biden administration. Um, like I said, I hope there's a flourishing of bipartisanship, um, but I'm not super optimistic. And I think that within a very short period of time, we're going to be looking at a situation where Democrats have a choice between essentially abandoning most of Biden's agenda uh, or reforming Senate rules so that they can actually get something done. So I think that this is something that uh, will be an issue for senators very quickly. And, and you know, hearing from their constituents in favor of reform uh, is very powerful. You know, it really does work. Senators listen to the phone calls they get, uh, even if it's just for their, you know, narrow self-interest because they want to get reelected. You know, when an issue seems to catch fire with their constituents and they start getting phone calls on it, they really do listen. Well, again, the work is called Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy by Adam Gentleson. He is the Public Affairs Director uh, at Democracy Forward. Adam, uh, thank you for spending some time with us today. How can uh, people pick up a copy of this and also check out some of the other things you've done in the past? Sure. It's great to be here. Uh, the book is available anywhere books are sold, um, online uh, or, or in brick-and-mortar stores. Um, if, if folks want to follow me, I do a lot of, you know, sort of running commentary on what's going on in the Senate, uh, mostly on Twitter at, uh, at A. Gentleson. It's A-J-E-N-T-L-E-S-O-N. All right. Well, again, uh, have a great 2021 and would love to have you back on again sometime. Would love that. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us for this installment of Lewis at Large. We add new conversations every week and we like hearing from you. You can contact us via email at warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. That's warnerflewis1 at gmail.com. And you can find out more at lewisatlarge.com or on the Lewis at Large Facebook page. And remember to subscribe to Lewis at Large. Check out Apple, Spotify, or Google Play. Now go have a great day.